I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello and welcome to the 193rd episode of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and today's episode is a mini-episode. Instead of focusing on one famous date and all the things being reported in newspapers on that day, these mini-episodes focus on one person, or one event, or one place. Today's mini-episode is about a true crime story from history that's pretty famous, And you might have heard of it before, at least part of it, but I'm choosing to share it because it was the first known crime of this type in the United States. Today's official episode date is July 1st, 1874, but the earliest newspaper article I personally could find about this incident was printed in the July 6th, 1874 edition of the Philadelphia Inquirer. The article is under the special notes section. And in big, bold letters, it says, $300 reward. Okay, you need a little more info than that. If you continue reading, the article says, $300 will be paid for the return to number 304 Market Street, Philadelphia, of a small boy, aged four years, named Charlie Brewster Ross. Friends, Today's episode is about the kidnapping and disappearance of Charlie Ross back in 1874. It was the first time a kidnapping for ransom made national headlines in the United States. But there's more to it than that. A famous saying comes from this case, too. As a parent, I've said it many times, and I've heard others say it many times, too. Don't take candy from a stranger. In 1874, the Ross family consisted of parents Christian and Sarah Ross and their seven children. The family lived in Germantown, which was a neighborhood of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Germantown was an old neighborhood, and it was even an old neighborhood back in 1874. The area was first established in the 1600s. It was known for being an affluent neighborhood, and the Ross family had a large home. One day, Charlie Ross, who was four years old at the time, was outside in the yard playing with his brother Walter, who was five years old. Charlie and Walter had two other brothers who were a bit older and an older sister. They also had two very young sisters. Not a lot is said about where their mother Sarah was during this time, but I believe she was in Atlantic City for her health. Anyway, the boys were outside playing in their yard, when suddenly a buggy with two men inside pulled up. The boys didn't know who they were, and I assume since Walter was the older of the two at five, he probably took the lead. The men got out of the buggy, greeted the boys, and then offered them some candy. Now the men had really gotten the boys' attention. They loved candy, and I doubt it was something that they got on a regular basis. They eagerly accepted the gift that was offered to them and began to eat it. The men got back in the buggy and left. I could never find a clear answer on this, but I don't think the boys even reported the incident to their siblings or to their father. But if they did, nothing about the situation sent up any red flags. Well, the very next day, 
The same men returned when Walter and Charlie were outside playing in their yard. Just like the day before, the men pulled up in their buggy, got out, talked to the two brothers, and then offered them some candy. Again, the boys eagerly accepted it, and they began to eat. And again, just like the day before, the men said goodbye, got back into their buggy, and left the Ross home. The strange interactions didn't stop there, though. The exact same situation would happen again and again. The men came for five days in a row and gave the boys candy every time. By this point, the boys completely trusted them, and they didn't think of them as strangers anymore, even though they didn't even know the men's names. That's why they didn't hesitate when the situation changed on that fifth day. You see, that time, the men got out of the buggy and offered the boys candy, just like before. But that time, the men told the boys they would need to come with them to the store to buy the candy. And, as a bonus, the men promised to also buy the boys fireworks. The day was July 1st, and towns all over the country were getting ready to celebrate the upcoming 4th of July. The boys thought having some fireworks of their own sounded like a pretty sweet deal. So, without any hesitation whatsoever, they climbed up into the buggy with their new friends. This is where things vary a little bit. Most sources just say that the men in the buggy drove the boys to the store. But one source said it was about two hours away. I'm not really sure how far away they went, but it must have been far enough that the men figured the boys wouldn't immediately be recognized. And even going just a few miles in a buggy would have taken a long time back then. Anyway, when they got to the store, the men helped Walter climb down out of the buggy and then gave him a quarter and sent him into the store to buy fireworks. He excitedly obeyed and hurried to complete his task. Except when he came back outside, the buggy was gone. He looked around and around, but he just couldn't find it. The men and his brother Charlie had completely disappeared. Not sure what to do, and feeling pretty scared at this point, Walter started to cry. A man walking by on the sidewalk saw the little boy standing there with tears streaming down his face and asked him what was wrong. Walter told the man that he was lost and that his brother was gone, and the man offered to drive him home. As you can imagine, when Christian Ross... The father found out what had just happened. He was extremely distraught. He'd thought the boys were playing in the neighbor's yard. Nobody even knew that they had left. Kidnappings like this just didn't happen back then. Christian began canvassing the neighborhood, asking questions, and, and hoping that someone saw something out of the ordinary. One neighbor did. The man told Christian that he had seen the boys riding down the street in the buggy, but he didn't really see the men inside, and he didn't know the boys weren't supposed to be there, so it didn't send up any alarms. He didn't even give it a second thought until Charlie turned up missing. When Mr. Ross didn't have any luck finding his son, he decided to offer a reward. The best he could do at the time was $300. He gave a full description of his son in the newspapers. This is how Charlie was described. He is dressed in a brown linen suit with short skirt, a broad-brimmed, unbleached Panama hat, and white-striped stockings. He has long, flaxen, curly hair, 
hazel eyes, clear skin, round, full face, is well-formed and without any marks except those made by vaccination on the arm. Remember how I said that Sarah Ross had been recovering from an illness in Atlantic City? Well, guess how she found out that her little four-year-old son was missing? Yep, she read it in the newspaper. I can only guess that Christian had kept it from his wife so she could keep recovering from whatever it was she was ailing from, but his plan didn't work. Three days passed, and still there was no sign of Charlie. The family missed their sweet boy, and they desperately wanted him to be returned. That's about the time they received the first of many ransom notes. They were said to be crudely written, and the writer used poor grammar and misspelled most of the words. Just for an example, the first note said, Mr. Ross, be not uneasy. You, son, Charlie Brester, be all writ. We got him, and no powers on earth can deliver out of our hand. You will have to pay us before you get him from us, and pay us a big cent, too. If you put the cops hunting for him, you is only defeating you own end. I know you can't see it, but most of the words that even sounded right were still misspelled. This note was the first known ransom note in American history. Fast forward a couple of days, and another note, similar to the first, with the bad grammar and bad spelling, arrived at the Ross home. That time, the kidnappers demanded that the Ross family pay $20,000 for the return of Charlie. It also instructed Christian Ross to communicate with the kidnappers through the personal ads of the Philadelphia Public Ledger newspaper, and again, not to involve the police with the situation. But Christian felt that he didn't have any other choice. You see, even though they lived in an affluent neighborhood, and even though the family had a big, huge house, the Rosses were actually heavily in debt. Christian owned a dry goods store, and the year before there had been a recession, and they had lost a lot of money. He was doing everything he could to stay afloat, but there was no way he could come up with $20,000. In today's money, that would be the equivalent of around $400,000. As soon as Christian finally went to the police and asked for help, they hurried to make up for lost time. The first thing they told Christian to do was to refuse to pay the ransom. They were worried that even if Christian could come up with the ransom money, paying it would show other criminals that kidnapping children made for an easy payday. If you've been listening to this podcast for long, you'll know that eventually this did happen. During the 30s, around the time when the Lindbergh baby was kidnapped, kidnapping was a common occurrence. Sometimes the ransom was paid and the kids were returned. Sometimes the ransom was paid and the kids never returned. And sometimes they just disappeared, never to be heard from again. Anyway, once the police knew about Charlie's kidnapping, they started printing out many, many handbills, and they handed them out all over Philadelphia and the surrounding area, even into New Jersey. A drawing of little Charlie was sent to newspapers, and his face became extremely well-known. When the citizens found out there were ransom notes, they begged for them to be released. People were worried that if it could happen to Charlie and Walter Ross, it could happen to their own children, and nobody knew what to think or what to expect. 
Well, just over three weeks after the kidnapping, the mayor of Philadelphia decided to offer a $20,000 reward to anyone who could provide any information about Charlie's whereabouts or who the kidnappers might be. As the Smithsonian Magazine described it, the action of offering a huge reward pretty much caused chaos to erupt all over the country. To use a modern term, it went viral. It had been less than a decade since the Civil War ended, and the country was still trying to rebuild. The Transcontinental Railroad had been operating for about five years, and people were starting to spread out more and more across the country. The offer of the reward had everyone looking, including the Pinkerton Detective Agency and a lot of other private detectives. Maybe this is when the true crime craze started. Everyone hoped to be the person to cash in on the money. Even P.T. Barnum called up Christian Ross and told him that he would pay $10,000 to help search for Charlie. Except, this was P.T. Barnum, and he had another motive than just being a nice guy. He offered the money with a stipulation that if and when Charlie was found, Christian would have him join the circus as one of their human oddities, if you will. To have the nationally famous kidnapped child in his show would be a big draw. Christian didn't like the idea at all, but he needed the money. He negotiated and told P.T. Barnum that he would take the money as a loan instead of having Charlie as a sideshow in the circus. He would repay the money as soon as he could. Not surprisingly, the offer of the reward also brought all the con artists out of the woodwork. Many parents, who probably weren't the best parents, dressed their kids up, styled their kids' hair just so, and did everything they could to try to pass their sons off as Charlie. They'd rather turn their kid over to the Ross family and get $20,000 than keep their own child. Christian Ross estimated that he heard stories from at least 600 different kids claiming to be Charlie. The police were doing their best to find Charlie, and in August, they conducted a search of every single building in Philadelphia. It didn't turn up any sign of the missing boy. Now, Walter Ross might have only been five years old, but he'd been able to give a description of both of the kidnappers to the police and that information was being taken into consideration. A month or so after the kidnapping, a man named Gil Mosher came forward and told New York police that the descriptions of the kidnappers sounded just like his brother William and a friend named Joseph Douglas. Gil Mosher wasn't exactly an upstanding citizen himself, and he'd been in trouble with the law before. The question was, was he believable? Well, it seemed that other witnesses had seen those two men near the boys. The superintendent of police in New York decided to do some more digging, and in the process, he discovered that one of his policemen, a policeman who had been fired for questionable behavior, was the brother-in-law of William Mosher. The fired cop was William Westervelt. The superintendent decided to offer Westervelt the chance to be rehired as a cop, if he would secretly spy for the police and see if he could get any information from the accused men. And it worked. Sort of. It turned out that Westervelt really wasn't a good guy, and he ended up acting as a double agent 
and telling the accused men about everything the police had on them. Sadly, despite the cooperation of the Philadelphia and New York Police Departments, the investigation stalled. I'm not sure if they even knew where the two suspects were hiding out. And then, five months after Charlie was kidnapped, everything changed. In December of 1874, William Mosher and Joseph Douglas, the supposed kidnappers, tried to rob a home on Long Island, but they got caught, and both men ended up being killed in a shootout with police. But, right before Joseph Douglas died, he uttered a few final words, and he admitted that he and Mosher were indeed the men who had kidnapped little Charlie Ross. And then, he died, before he could say anything else. He didn't give any indication of whether or not Charlie was still alive, and if he was, where they were hiding him. In what must have been a very traumatic moment for young Walter Ross, the police took the boy, who had just turned six, down to look at the bodies of Mosher and Douglas. Sure enough, little Walter looked at the men and said that they were the ones who had taken his brother. The police were more desperate than ever to find Charlie. They decided to go back to the ex-cop, William Westervelt, and they arrested him for conspiracy. Even though Westervelt claimed he was innocent over and over, and that he knew nothing about Charlie's whereabouts, he was still sentenced to seven years in prison. But even after his sentence was completed, he claimed he didn't know what had happened to Charlie Ross. The Ross family threw every penny they could get at trying to find their son. And in 1876, Christian Ross wrote a book called The Father's Story of Charlie Ross, the Kidnapped Child. Every dollar the family made on book sales went back into the search for Charlie. Christian estimated that he spent $60,000 looking for his son, triple the amount the kidnappers had originally asked. Sadly, years passed, and then decades passed, and still there was no sign of Charlie Ross. Even if he was still alive, nobody knew what he would look like as an adult. Then, in 1897, Christian Ross passed away without ever learning what had happened to his son. Sarah Ross lived for 15 more years, and then she passed in 1912. Charlie's siblings, and then their descendants, tried to distance themselves from the case, despite the best efforts of people to continue dredging up all of the dirty details. They just wanted to live their lives and put the horrible event far behind them. The home where they had all lived when Charlie disappeared was torn down in 1926. Charlie would have been 56 years old. Then, in an extremely strange and shocking twist that suddenly made Charlie Russ a household name once again, 65 years after his disappearance, a man came forward in 1939 and claimed that he was Charlie Russ. The family had seen this happen countless times before. But this man, Gustav Blair, who lived in Phoenix, Arizona, wouldn't let the matter go. He insisted and insisted and insisted that he was the missing boy. Gustav explained that he remembered living in a cave as a young child. And he said that the family who raised him even told him that he had been kidnapped, 
and that his name used to be Charlie Russ. Gustav was so adamant about his claim that he went to court over it in Arizona to insist that he be declared as the real Charlie Russ. His case was heard, and in a very shocking outcome, especially to the Ross family, the court ruled that Gustav Blair was indeed Charlie Ross, the boy that had disappeared 65 years earlier. Gustav had his name officially changed to Charlie Ross, and he even moved with his wife to Germantown, Pennsylvania for a while. I think he was hoping to be reunited with his family. Except the remaining members of the Ross family refused to acknowledge him, or even talk to him, and they absolutely refused to give him a cut of the family inheritance. And when Gustav Blair died just a few years later, in 1943, he died still claiming to be Charlie Ross. Could it have been true? The claim was debated for many years, and then finally someone decided to do something about it since DNA research had come so far. Testing was done on family members, and it proved without a doubt that Gustav Plair was a DNA match for the family that he claimed had adopted him as a kidnapped child. They were his real family, not the Ross family. Sadly, next year marks the 150th anniversary of Charlie Ross's disappearance, and there is still no answer as to what happened to the little boy. Was he killed soon after he was taken? Or was he given away and raised to adulthood, never guessing who he really was? Unfortunately, this is another one of those mysteries that will most likely never be solved. In modern times, Charlie's name is still heard now and then. For example, about 20 years ago, an online database for information about missing people was created. And you might have heard of it, because it's still going strong. It's called the Charlie Project. And yes, it's named for Charlie Ross, the first kid who had a ransom note sent for his return in the United States. The kid who gave us all the saying, don't take candy from a stranger. Friends, thanks for listening to today's mini-episode. Whether you knew about Charlie's story before or not, I hope you at least learned some new information about it. Join me again this coming Monday for an all-new full-size episode. It will be about the opening of an extremely iconic landmark. I think you'll like it. Talk to you later.